Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is Adam Biles. Adam is literary director at Shakespeare and Company in Paris, a.k.a. the best bookshop in the world. And some of the books he stocks are his own. He published his first novel, Feeding Time, in 2016, and his new one, Beast of England, is out now. It's both a sequel to and a reimagining of George Orwell's 1945 masterpiece, Animal Farm, using the farmyard allegory to comment on more recent political developments. Hi, Adam. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So it struck me that all I was writing about Russian politics from England using an English setting. Yeah. You're writing in this largely, not exclusively, about UK politics from your base in Paris, where I believe you've been for 18 years? Yes. What was it like watching the mayhem of the last few years in your home country from a distance? It was different depending on which years we're talking about, because between, well, when I first moved out to Paris in 2005 and up until... 2018, I would go back quite regularly. Um, I'd go back every three or four months um, to the town that I grew up, which is Bournemouth. And one thing I noticed, particularly after the financial crisis and after um, austerity really kicked in, Mm. was that each time I went back, I would notice another shop on the high street boarded up or, you know, another part of the railway station crumbling down and kind of fenced off. And when I would talk about this with family um, still who were still in the town, they would sort of say, oh, yeah, 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 that's true. But I think because I wasn't going back so frequently, I, it's almost a little bit like the, the frog in the, the yeah, water that's so slowly thinking, boiling. Yeah, yeah. That sort of, I, I, I would have a sense of the town and the country generally kind of going to the dogs. <clears throat> and people who were, who were there, they shared that sense, but not in quite such a dramatic way. Um, and then the pandemic struck. And in fact, for, for different reasons, I hadn't been back to, Par- to Bournemouth much in 2019. And then the pandemic struck. And so by the time I started writing this book, which was in early 2021, I'd actually been out of the UK for the longest period in my life, which was close to two years. And that provoked another kind of sentiment, which was sadness and frustration, I guess. Sadness at at, at, at what I saw was happening, both with, with Brexit, uh, the disaster that was um, politically and socially, and then with the pandemic and the way that the pandemic in a weird sort of way was used a little bit to cover up the, uh, the disaster of Brexit and then added its whole own sort of layer of sort of mismanagement and incompetence and corruption on top of that. And the frustration was that I felt like I couldn't do anything about it from that distance. Now, Honestly, I don't know what I would have done if I was here. And I think a lot of my friends and family here felt a similar frustration and similarly impotent. But that was one of, I guess, the driving forces behind this book. Because for those who don't know, Orwell's work fell out of copyright in the UK in January 2021, Mm. making a a book like this possible. But are you saying that the moral and emotional impulse rather than the literary impulse was that experience during the pandemic? Yeah, I would say so. Like literary impulse is always difficult to talk about because um, it's you're never really sure where it comes from. I think often of the the novelist Robertson Davies who said, "I don't get my ideas; my ideas get me." Um, so once the idea had come for writing a sequel to Animal Farm, I didn't think too much about the literary side of it. But I came across this quote from Orwell. I think it was in his. I may be getting this wrong, but I think it was in the preface to the Ukrainian edition of Animal Farm, where he says that that was the first time with this book, he fused his political purpose and his artistic purpose. Um, And I just thought that was a really interesting turn of phrase, particularly not Mm. like a political point or a political message, but a political purpose, Um, which to me implies that not only do I want to sort of 
convey ideas with this book, but he also wanted this book to have an effect. And that was something which, yeah, really caught my attention and really made me think, okay, maybe books in some sort of limited way can still have a political effect. And presumably because of his real anger and moral purpose, you know, you you needed your own. Because I could imagine um, a rather sort of glib, almost spitting image mm. version of Animal Farm with with, you know, modern politicians being represented. But because Orwell was like determined to write this, determined to get his message across, determined to get it published despite all the difficulties, that almost in order to do something like this, you had to have that genuine uh, outrage. Yes, yeah. I think I had to have the the genuine outrage and also the genuine sense of I was making a moral gesture with this book. Right. Um, which is, I, I think Orwell is one of those writers who is an inherently moral writer. And by which, I mean, I don't think that he's necessarily always conveying amoral. Like, I think it's it's debatable whether there is a specific moral to Animal Farm. But the writing of the book itself is a moral act for him. And not just Animal Farm, but I think his essays too, I think 1984. And I don't think that's particularly common among writers. Mm. The only other sort of major 20th century writer who I would say was a distinctly moral writer and for whom writing was a moral act is probably Albert Camus. And you find that in, the, in that sort of drive in his, um, in his work. And, you know, I'm not saying that I have quite the same, um, certainly the same capacity as Orwell or Camus to, to sort of to, to, to realize this moral act or to bring it, you know, bring it to fruition. But I, I found that inspiring. I thought that in this context where a lot of immoral or what I saw as immoral acts were, were underway, that could be the way that I could potentially have an impact. And Orwell and Camus were meant to meet up in Paris shortly before <laughs> Animal Farm came out. Oh, right. But Camus was uh, ill. Huh. And so they never met, which is a shame because yeah. I think you could you could probably make a, a movie yeah. around a kind <laughs> maybe of maybe that'll be the next coffee book. <laughs> between those two. Yeah. Yeah. Um so Animal Farm is both satire and, and propaganda, and its message is really clear and, and Orwell didn't disguise that. He was quite happy for copies to be distributed in, in Eastern Europe, you know, where he thought that his point would be really urgent. Does the mess of democratic politics, even in the populist era, make that kind of direct hit? more difficult because he's he's almost like you know a plague on stalinism mm-hmm. you can't sort of denounce i mean one could but i don't think you are denouncing democracy in the same no. way um I, I think that it's much more complex i mean one of the things that's um certain reviews of the book have cited i think fairly is that compared to orwell's story which is in some sense very pure and very short beast yeah. of england is much more there's, there's a lot more threads there's a lot more stories and perhaps sometimes there can be elements of confusion about what exactly is going on when and i think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to say about the book my sort of justification for that is you know have you have you seen recent politics like there's not just sort of one thread you can understand one particular target you can um you can go after and you said like for Orwell it was a plague on on Russia a little bit for me when i started writing this book um well not right right at the start it was sort of a plague on you know the brexiteers plague on johnson plague on the right wing very quickly as i started piecing together what was going to be my allegory my feeling really became like a plague on all of your houses, like really, really? like across the board. Um, and that dissipated in a certain way as the as the book went on. But I expected to come at it with from a, from a certain, you know, what I consider my sort of 
political home, which would be sort of broadly centre-left with certain caveats, and found myself, as I was tracing the threads of this particular book, getting frustrated with, maybe not with everyone equally, but mm. with, certainly with everyone. Well, Animal Farm, uh, as people will know, probably a lot of listeners will have studied it at school. Mm-hmm. Um, like of all the classic novels, novellas in, in English, it's like, it is one of the easiest to read. Yes. Um, and it's a very disciplined allegory of Soviet Russia. You can make a one-to-one comparison between almost every character and events. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon the Pig is Stalin, Boxer the Horse is the Exploited Worker, and so on. Yeah. Now, in Peace of England, there were times when I was very confident that I identified the politician that an animal was representing. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes I became less sure. Uh-huh. So if, if I think a certain character represents Boris Johnson or uh-huh. Nigel Farage or, or Jeremy Corbyn, am I wrong? You know, and, and that actually they're all sort of composites to some extent. Or is it that you, at this stage of publication mm-hmm. anyway, as the author, don't want to lay it out and give everybody mm-hmm. a, a key, but, th- but there sort of is a key in your head? Yeah. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think uh, one of the things that is interesting about Animal Farm is that it's very specific to the Russian Revolution in a way. Like, the, you know, the, the characters do map on more or less precisely. And the events, you know, right up to the fact that the final scene, which Orwell said he intended to basically mirror the Tehran conference. Yeah. Um, and yet in somehow it transcends those events too and sort of tells a a bigger truth in some way and it touches people uh, I mean there's a, there's that wonderful moment in um, in Martin Amos's Money where John Self is reading Animal Farm he's saying yes, this book is great it's a real page turner and it's only like several hundred pages later that someone tells him it's an allegory for the Russian Revolution and you know it turns out he just thought it was a book about particularly intelligent pigs and, <laughs> I don't remember that but That's I think great. there's something so interesting about that because what so when I first went into it I was actually quite determined not to have direct corollaries between particular characters and particular politicians. But then I realized actually there is, in a weird kind of way, you achieve general truth through precision. Mm. It's like that old thing of, you know, if you you try to appeal to everybody, you end up appealing to nobody. And so I allowed myself to tack pretty close to certain characters uh, at certain moments. But also a lot of the underlying structure comes from the fact that there are patterns to the way democracies decay and corruptions, corruption enters in. So, you know, the election of Trump and the Brexit vote are in one said two very different historical moments. And yet I don't think it's incorrect either to, to, to draw parallels between certain events and certain processes and certain technologies, for example, that led to these, led to these events. So, if um, and I guess this we comes come, this comes back to the the artistic purpose of the book. If there came a moment where, let's say, one particular character is relatively close to Boris Johnson, if there came a moment where this character needed to do something to depart from the right, Boris yeah, Johnson yeah. line, then in order to serve the book, as I saw it, then I would I would allow them to do that. I mean, I think maybe one thing weird thing about um, a lot of the politicians of the last few years is that they always seem like types mm-hmm. in a way Johnson or Farage or Corbyn and and so they they seem to lend themselves very well in a way that I don't know like Jeremy Hunt uh-huh. does not seem to be crying out to p- appear in a, a novel or an allegory or or anything yeah 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 but we have had these really big and in some kinds quite grotesque characters 
Yeah, I think so. You take um, someone like Trump, for example. Um, he was already allegorized before he came about in novels like It Can't Happen Here. Like that was, it was a strange moment when when he was elected. Yeah. People looked, I mean, a little bit less, but in like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America as well, there was already this whole almost genre of American literature that predated Trump, but that seemed to allegorize his um, his arrival in power. Um I did struggle because, as I say, I had a bit of a plague on all your houses kind of approach. And what I really didn't want to do was people for people to read this book and say, OK, there's clearly a guy with, you know, broadly center left um, opinions who was probably shaped, you know, in the 1990s as a teenager and felt the optimism of new labor and hasn't quite got over that. And <laughs> because I found an enormous frustration with how the center ground, like my where I find my political home to be have acted over the last few years. But as you say, it's difficult to find types that fit with them and to find patterns to to their their behavior. And I think the thing that I, I landed on was this sort of, I guess, an emotional blindness of the of the left, like this refusal to understand that of the center center left, this refusal to understand that Yes, a lot of politics was about emotion and the gut and just sort of ploughing on with this idea of, of rationality, I guess. When we start the book, Buttercup is in mm. charge of the farm and, and he is the status quo. Yes. Like not necessarily like Tony Blair or uh -huh. David Cameron, but he is the status quo, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and you're very sort much. of like, when you see the people that sort of want to take over the farm, there's some sympathy towards him, but also these giant flaws and mm. miscalculations. Yes. I, a, a lot of the plot, in a sense, was reverse engineered. Like I knew where I wanted to get to. But I wasn't entirely sure when I first started writing where I was going to start. Um, so where I wanted to get to, there were a few scenes uh, from recent recent years which which stuck with me. So there was the faces of um, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove the morning after the Brexit vote. Oh, yeah. um, just that the look of sort of almost sort of disbelief and uh, this weird kind of desolation. Oh. Um, there was Trump's inauguration and the whole Ameri American carnage speech and the iconography, the sort of pseudo-fascist iconography he surrounded himself with. And I, so I, I knew that the feeling I wanted to get to. And then as I started tracing back, I did say, OK, so, you know, we need to go through austerity. We need to go through the financial crisis. And then, but then I found myself kind of rolling further and further back Probably too, like, you know, it, Buttercup, as you say, isn't directly Tony Blair or, or Bill Clinton or that kind of figure. But I did suddenly find the, the seeds of a lot of this, I suppose, this, this um, decay of this idea of truth or of shared stories or of uh, the reliability of narratives in some of the, well, for want of a better word, shenanigans of like Blair and Campbell in the... Mm. In the, in the mid to late nineties, I should say at this point that that it, it the book opens sometime after the events of the original mm. farm. There are, you know, callbacks and, and you know some characters recur, but the, 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 a, lot, a fair bit of time has passed. Yes, and I allow myself a sort of deliberate vagueness between how it went from Stalinist totalitarianism to kind of <laughs> you know, consumer <laughs> democracy. Yeah. That that wasn't so important, so no. I, I gave myself a bit of leeway. <laughs> that's no, that's that's fair enough. Um, 
Well, you mentioned there the, the, the kind of, you know, the bending of truth. And when I reread Animal Farm in 2017, mm -hmm. I found that the theme of what we now call post-truth felt very relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone knows the rewriting of history, the gaslighting of citizens mm -hmm. and so on, is crucial to 1984. Yeah. It's almost the thing that people know about 1984. But it's really important in in um, Animal Farm yes. as well. Like people, the animals are constantly being told that's not what the rules were. Yes. The rules haven't changed. You've just misremembered them. Uh -huh. And there's a real almost sort of nightmarish sense of like some of the, well described some of the animals going, oh, sure, it wasn't quite like that, but yeah. it, but I guess it, it must be. And yeah, that yeah, felt yeah. very modern. When you reread it, which, given that it is an allegory of a regime from 1917 to 1945, like w which bits felt modern to you? Um, certainly the, the violence done to language. I realised that that is what had struck me as a teenager when I studied it at school as well. I don't think I really knew about the details of the Russian Revolution. I would have studied it, but I do remember those moments, you know, uh, no animal shall sleep in a bed with sheets. Or, you know, four legs good, two legs bad, being kind of corrupted and changed and, and feeling each of those as a real gut punch. Um, and that was the thing that in rereading it to, in order to write this book, I felt again and I really felt the, the, the relevance of, of that to our contemporary situation. But I think we've gone one step further as well, which is it's not just that these words change now. But the almost the facts change behind them, like the mm. the effect that these words have on the reality as the animals or as we see it. And I think something that Orwell um, would not have been able to see because he was looking at sort of state control of mm -hmm. information is something one can see on Twitter, for example, every day, uh, which is that ordinary people are perfectly willing to misuse words to cite misleading facts uh -huh. that that actually it seems to be a quite common human thing that you don't need a, a regime to do this mm -hmm. people become sort of complicit yeah I, th I think behind that complicity there's also a carelessness as well um everyone has busy lives people you know don't necessarily pay too much attention to the, the the implications of certain words, to where they're getting their information from. You know, they, you get the information from the, you know, I'm as, uh, I, I do this as much as anyone else, from the source you feel most comfortable with. You're probably most likely to trust the source, which already chimes with your, mm. your pre-held ideas. And because we're busy, because we're overwhelmed, we, we sort of carelessly accept them. And that was one of the things that occurred to me in the writing was that, you know, again, I said it was a plague on all their houses. It's actually a plague on all our houses. Like, I think I, I had this growing sense of, like, the the individual responsibility of each of us. Now, I don't want to condemn each of us. You want some of us to buy the book. Well, yeah. <laughs> but we were all, let's say, a little bit mm. shit. <laughs> but then that's not necessarily a bad thing to say because I think also maybe one thing that allowed me to give at least a glimmer of hope at the end of the book was that, if all of us just being a little bit crappy and a little bit careless can lead to the sort of mm. vicious circle and lead to the situation we have, is it naive to think that if we all just became a little bit less mm. crappy, you know, we don't have to make these huge gestures, we don't have to radically transform our lives, but just made a little bit more effort, maybe we could set in motion a kind of a virtuous circle that, that could improve things. Can you explain how you represented social media? Because that was mm. one of my favourite bits and that was one of those bits that felt that's so new 
and yet so in the spirit of the... Yeah, that, the, see, that was the biggest challenge I had when I first conceived the book because I think one of the advantages Orwell had was that all of his characters, all of the events existed essentially on the same plane. That's not how we live now. We live on, mm. you know, at the very least, on two planes. You might say the, I don't think we really talk in these terms anymore, but the real world and the the online world. Yeah. But there was definitely a sense that there was this separation and they were these two elements were influencing each other, but they weren't directly connected necessarily in any physical sense. And I struggled to come up with something. And then obviously with all of the the ideas that you struggle with, the the answer is staring you in the face. And I remember once just, you know, lo- going onto Twitter, seeing the bird logo and realizing that, you know, I could have these two planes. I could have the groundling animals. I could have the pigs and mm. the cows and the alpacas and all the others. And then I could have this murmuration of starlings who arrive on the farm and interact, but also exist in their own mm. their own raised space and start causing mischief um, or trouble from this kind of elevated, yeah. slightly sort of um, ungrounded position. I wanted to get back to, to where I suppose where we started with a sort of emotional impulse. Mm-hmm. And um, Margaret Atwood once said that, that as a child, even though she knew nothing about Stalinism and, and, and probably like uh, John Self in Money didn't understand <laughs> what the book is about, she cried when Boxer died and that's uh-huh. what stuck with her. Yes. Um, now, I found no spoilers, um, there were some real emotional gut punches in Beasts mm-hmm. of England as well, where I was genuinely like, oh, bloody hell. Yeah. Um, was that tragic dimension important to you as something that was both fundamental to to Animal Farm and very important to, to the kind of satire, if you want to call it that, that you're doing that is not that sort of, you know, glib surface satire yeah absolutely and in fact in the early drafts some my some of my early readers that was a thing that several of them pointed out that for them they didn't find there was necessarily what might be called the boxer moment Mm. but it's a bit more complicated i think these days to have that moment because i you know i'm a great admirer of orwell i think where one of his blind spots is is a tendency sometimes to romanticize the working class. Mm. And the trouble is when you romanticize a group of people, you decomplexify and to a certain extent dehumanize them. And I think he does fall victim a little bit to that with Boxer. Like right. I think Boxer has the sort of the romanticized, hardworking, credulous, naive working class. I, I think I, I had to be a little bit more, a little bit less direct with which animals represented certain classes because again the way we look at society has changed and then again you know without any spoilers i thought of the moment during the brexit referendum when um when joe cox was murdered and i thought two things about that firstly about what are just absolutely harrowing and sort of politically devastating and personally devastating event that was for, I think, obviously for her family, but also for British democracy, that that could happen at that moment. And also then then in the days that followed it, there's that horrible feeling of, and this isn't going to change anything. Like people aren't going to mm-hmm. take, you know, take a few steps back and say, maybe this rhetoric has gone too far. I mean, like it just, there was a pause in the campaigning and then everything just went on as before. And I realized that if there was going to be sort of an equivalent of the kind of the boxer moment. And I think there are not just one, there are maybe several in in, in, in the book, but that it, it had to be of that kind yeah. of, of caliber. 
And, and even though the themes are are, are not cheering, um, <laughs> you know, because of the nature of it, was it was it a fun book to write? Was it even cathartic? How much pleasure did you get out of creating these characters, playing with Orwell's legacy, and and fixing those problems as you went went along? I think it's probably the most enjoyable thing that I've ever written. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, I think yeah. for for two reasons. Firstly, because just writing something with talking animals is something I never considered before. And it allowed me to sort of expand into, I guess, a non-realist, non-human space. But it was also important to me that the book be fun to read. I think particularly when I realized that it was going to be longer than Animal Farm, because it had to be, mm. that maybe you know, adult readers have a certain patience threshold for, for talking animals and maybe Orwell had got it just about right. <laughs> and so if I was going to make it, you know, one and a half, almost two times as long as his book, then it had to be funnier and it had to be entertaining. I also think that's more my my natural aesthetic. Like I was raised on the sort of in the wake of the sort of alternative comedy of the early 80s. And so that, you know, was shaped as much by the young ones and viz and things like that as by as by as by as by literature. I believe in the fundamental seriousness of comedy and of the absurd. And I think uh, just because a book is funny doesn't mean it's serious. And in fact, I, I would go as far as to say I, I have difficulty sometimes taking a book that isn't funny seriously. That's a very, uh, to come back to Martin Amis, that's a very Martin Amis yes. approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me, Adam Biles. Thank you for having me. Uh, Beasts of England is out now, published by the excellent Galley Beggar Press, and you can hear Adam interview authors on the Shakespeare and Company podcast. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on uh, pesky social media, or reviewing us on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon, where you'll get episodes early, without ads, and with bonus goodies. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The assistant producer is Adam Wright, social media by Jess Harpin, art by Jim Parrott, and audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and our music is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.